0: Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Friday, July the 29th, 2022. There'll never be another Friday in July, 2022, the last one, so we're celebrating. (laughs) Uh, by thinking about the future, the deep future, though, rather than the shallow future today. Done some future shows this week. We did one with Matthew Ball, um, who's just got a new book out on uh, the metaverse. Uh, it's got a familiar kind of tech title The Metaverse and How It Will Revolutionize Everything. Tech people are always telling us that this or that. Metaverse, crypto, the Internet, um, uh, Web 3, Web 2, Web 1 will revolutionize everything. Sometimes it does, sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes the revolution isn't that successful. A lot of people are very critical of big tech. We had one of those earlier this week, Ariel Esrachi, who teaches at Oxford University, who believes that we need to break up big tech and uh, it needs to be replaced with cities to stimulate uh, innovation. Whether or not you want to break up big tech, though, the, uh, the future of the future seems inevitable and unavoidable. Uh, one of the really interesting pieces this week was about Mind's uh, Google's AI think tank uh, research group, Uh, who have come out with some news this week that um, they are able now to predict the shape of nearly every protein known to science. The future indeed has arrived. I discussed this earlier today on my That Was The Week show with my old friend Keith Teer. Deep future, shallow future, real future, invented future, boring future, exciting future – and if there is a futurist who is best able to talk to this, it's my guest today, Pablos Holman, um, remarkable man, remarkable innovator, quite eccentric, kind of mad in his own way, which I think is what we need from futurists. Uh, Pablos is joining us from Brooklyn, where he touched down. You don't live there, Pablos, do you? Where do you live? Or, or do futurists really not live anywhere? <laughs>
1: yeah, I live mostly on Earth thinking about opening a second office somewhere else. And where might that be? I don't know. It's 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 really hard to tell. There's so much real estate. You, you hardly have time to tour all of it out in space. Well, so,
0: Well, Pablos, you joke about space, but you were one of Jeff Bezos' big advisors and pioneers at uh, Blue Origin. So it's not just a throwaway remark. You're very much involved in a lot of these projects. What do you make, Pablos, of the metaverse. Let's begin there. Your deepfuture.tech website focuses on all of this stuff. You do a lot of speaking, advising, consulting. You are the futurist around town or around space. Do you think that the metaverse is a big deal or is it rather boring?
1: Well, I don't think it's rather boring. It just might be boring for a while, right? You know, what you ultimately want is for the computer to be able to to help you out in the real world, and some of what metaverse refers to is the ability for the computer to get to know you, understand you, what you care about, and 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 make your life better. Right now, it's uh, it's not quite there yet, and and uh, probably not ready to make your life much better. It could make your life worse. Um, we've experienced that with some of the some of the things that we've been, you know, turning into daily tools, and it takes a while so i don't know i think it's it, all these things need a hype cycle metaverse is in the hype cycle
0: yeah. yeah and speaking of hype cycles my business is attacking hype cycles i wrote a piece this week <laughs> about the metaverse isn't going to save okay. us um, suggesting that the metaverse is a distraction as we destroy the environment of, around us we enter this place called the metaverse is there any connection Pablos, in your mind between today's environmental crisis, our destruction of nature and other species, and our retreat into
1: our screens? Oh. Uh, I think the destruction of nature and other species probably has been going on all along. We might be exacerbating it by making more humans than than we really know how to take care of, right? So we made a lot of humans, didn't necessarily... Uh, figure out how to farm them efficiently (laughs) enough (laughs) to do it without a lot of damage and so you know yeah we're we're leaving a big footprint on earth right now Uh, i think you know retreat into metaverse might actually make humans a little more efficient to farm if you think of it that way because uh the less moving around they do the less energy they use but i don't know i think it's uh possible to do a good job of both of these things, but we've got to lo- make a lot more energy and we got to make people more efficient. So,
0: Is efficiency, yeah. Pablos, everything? I uh, did a show last week with the winner of the Orwell Prize for Journalism, George Monbiat. He has a new mm. book out, a uh, very influential and respected environmental journalist, uh, Regenesis, which argues that we need to go back to basics. We need to go back when it comes to the production of food and farming we need to go back to cultivating the soil, that industrial agriculture has been a catastrophe. Um, have you seen a lot of interesting innovation on the farming front? It's an area that's often talked about by futurists.
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, that, that, that guy is rolling up a few different concepts. So yeah, certainly um, it's possible to over farm land and to, and to make the soil less fruitful over time and we really want to solve that and that you know that can be done by managing you know how you how you handle fertilizing how much you use the land what crops you cycle through it and those things and we're getting better and better about that all the time you know we didn't understand any of those things um, you know 100 years ago and most of those things even 50 years ago but now we we're starting to understand and so that's kind of important milestone because once you understand what's happening then you can start to really do a much better job of managing your resources and so with farming you know we've done extraordinary things with with farming and scaled up farming dramatically i mean you know we went from millions of people on earth to billions of people on earth in just the last 200 years and somehow managed to feed them all. You can see that's me showing
0: yeah, exactly. Right. Making the
1: university. You see, uh, okay. I'm like deep mind,
0: Pablos. So I can predict what you're going to say. You, and so you got know exactly what you're say.
1: Well, it's an easy way of framing the situation. You know, when you, know, when you think about all those hockey stick growth curves that uh, the tech industry is beating you over the head with, the one that matters the most is driving everything is that population growth curve. You know, we made 8 billion people. We have to feed them. You could say go back to simpler times and have everybody farm their own food but that would be equivalent to a genocide you know you can't do that that is not an efficient way to feed people and so we know that it's easy arithmetic to figure it out so i think it's a little disingenuous for people to advocate for that you know you know growing your own food is a dalliance for rich people at this point um we have to make a lot more nutrients than we can do in that way. So you have to you have to do it at a large scale. You have to do it in a very efficient way. And it's an exciting example of humans sort of rising to the occasion to solve a problem. We have done that. We have made enough nutrients. We haven't done a good job of distributing that evenly around the world. So there are still some people suffering with not enough food, and we need to fix that for sure. But going forward, one of the really exciting things is we are learning how to do it more efficiently like we are farming in a more efficient fashion and we are learning to create proteins and things that we can grow without having to do it on an animal you know so it's exciting to be able to you know see a, a relatively near future in our lifetime where we'll be able to provide the nutrients everybody needs and we'll be able to reduce some of the damage that you were referring to earlier so yeah i see a lot of technology for that
0: Pablo could you imagine a future, maybe a deep future where agriculture no longer exists, where all food is manufactured, where we live off impossible burgers and soylent style energy bars?
1: Well, I mean, those are, um, you know, I think of it as like, those are very crude Commodore 64 versions of the food that we want. You know, um, so I'm not necessarily advocating for those things, but there are some some wins. I mean, Impossible Burger is a little bit incongruous to me because I don't know who wants that. But Soylent is well, some people do. Person. Some people enjoy. You know, that it's quite successful. Yeah, why is that? You're asking me. I'm not. the Yeah, futurist. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I I don't think Impossible Burger is the future for me. I hope it isn't. <laughs> I don't know. I think if you're a vegetarian, well, a lot of people don't want to eat meat, food. and a lot of people like you miss it. Though?
0: Well, a lot of people like the taste of meat, but don't want to kill animals and believe that one of the reasons for our environmental crisis is that we have too much cattle, which are contributing to Mm -hmm. global warming. So it's one way around
1: that. Yeah, I mean, I think if you, you know, really face it head on, you know, most people would not be proud of the way we have scaled factory farming of animals right right? factory farming the way we treat pigs
0: and chickens and even cows is 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 pretty shocking yeah
1: of course so it'd be nice to steer off of that and you know we're getting to a point now where we know how to grow those same proteins in a lab without the animal right we just have not been able to scale it in a cost-effective fashion there's technical engineering problems to solve there and they've been solved at varying you know varying degrees but scaling it up is hard because you want to you want to grow a lot of those you know those cells without uh you know without bacterial risk and without other problems is that one of
0: the exciting things about the deep mind news this week that they can predict the shape of nearly every protein that they will
1: eventually supposedly be able to produce protein. Well, that's a different issue, but yeah, those, those, yeah, the proteins for human consumption are kind of a, a different issue than what we're trying to solve by predicting how proteins are folding, um, which is what DeepMind is attacking. And, you know, that's a extraordinary milestone. We have a ways to go, but, yeah, it's very very useful because now that we have at least that first guess at what what each of those proteins does, we can start to figure out, you know, what we need to do to make them, figure out what utility that they have. I mean, every all, you know, they said there's 200 million of them. Every one of those is a PhD. <laughs> you know, somebody needs to go research each one of those and figure out, okay, where do we go from here with it? Um, how do we make it? What does it do? What's it useful for? I mean, there's a lot of exciting discoveries that will come, you know, in the wake of that.
0: On the other end, of course, of the agricultural revolution in terms of feeding us is reforming medicine. You've done a lot of thinking about that. You did a, a show that I was just listening to, mm-hmm. Redefining Medicine. We did a show last week with a German um, thinker on the future of medicine who imagines the end of medicine as we know it very much bound up with the data revolution. Do you see the medical industry like the agricultural industry as one, excusing the pun here, ripe for radical innovation or destruction?
1: Yeah, it's, that's a, I mean, the potential is extraordinary right now. We have a complicated problem with, You know, the structure of our healthcare system, which drives a lot of what happens in medicine and and the environment is not super conducive to innovation. That's been difficult. A lot of very important things don't get developed because of the incentives and the business models and those things. So that is that is a very tough one there. I think I look globally to the potential for advancing on these things in other jurisdictions where the regulatory environment and incentives are a little different. But fundamentally, what's exciting is kind of like I said about agriculture, you know, we have the toolkit now that we never had before to go and actually understand what's going on. A really simple example that people can relate to is, you know, when you eat food, you don't actually feed yourself. You feed a bunch of microbes in your gut, right? Thousand different microbes in your gut. You're feeding them. And then what they produce is what feeds you and my microbes are different than your microbes and so that's why i need a different diet than you do and that's why every diet book in history is probably bullshit because there is no one size fits all diet that's why you know a 90 pound icelandic supermodel can drink you under the table right because they have a gut microbiome that can process all that the sugar alcohol in the alcohols we can't all do that right so There's a, what's exciting now is we can sequence the genome of your microbes, right? Of your entire, uh, you know, microflora in your gut. So we know what microbes you have, what different ones I have, we can figure out over time. Again, every one of those microbes is somebody's PhD thesis. We have to learn what they do, figure out which ones you have too many of, figure out which ones would be helpful if you had more of them, figure out how to, you know, get everybody on a track that matches their diet or match their diet to their microbiome. So all of that is possible now. It wasn't even possible five or 10 years ago, but now we have that toolkit. And so in some sense, this is true in almost every thing that you're talking about. We have this extraordinary toolkit. We have the ability to, we have sensors that can measure almost anything. We have, uh, you know, the ability to sequence the genome. We have the ability to have microscopes that can see things, So we can get all this data. We have giant supercomputers to analyze the data. So now we can start to really figure out what's going on. And the, that's why it's so exciting because we're getting breakthroughs every day from this stuff. So, you know, the future is pretty bright for health as well. And that's, I'm just talking about one example, but something like that is true for everything else going on in humans. We're at the beginning of learning how we work. It's been voodoo all along, no offense to voodoo, but you know, it's (laughs) not a lot of data has been behind our understanding of human bodies and how we work, so, yeah.
0: Pablos, you did an interesting speech uh, at Singularity University, (laughs) you're very much involved with them. Just um, contrasting deep tech, what you call conjoined triangles of tech for people watching this, (laughs) and shallow tech, and you associate shallow tech with companies like Airbnb, Uber, and Facebook. Uh, Peter Thiel famously said uh, about Twitter that we were promised flying cars and we got 140 characters. Do you think that the broad tech business, particularly the VC-backed business, has really screwed up when it comes to deep tech, that they're focusing on shallow tech and producing companies like the ones you, you have in your slide, Airbnb, well, Uber, and Facebook, Facebook which all you say, I mean, they may not be bad companies,
1: they're useful in their own way, but they don't have any revolutionary tech. Yeah, these are kind of the logical extension of what you get when you invent a bunch of actual technologies, you know, like wireless data and smartphones and all the things that make Uber possible. You know, I don't think any of those companies uh, are have, have invented anything of note so far that I know of, right? Those are companies that are, you know, good entrepreneurs who made a very successful business, but they didn't, um, you know, they didn't create a new technology that, 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 I think they're kind of inevitable businesses. That's why I, I make fun of them by calling them shallow tech. But you're right in some sense, the venture capital community you know, really got its start in the tech industry by doing hard things, you know, by creating new technologies that were uh, unproven You know, that's why it's called venture. You know, there's a lot of Shackleton in it. You have to go (laughs) try something and you may never come back. And that's not what's going on. You know, I think of the venture capital industry largely as a software capital industry. Um, You know, they're doing AI for human resources and machine learning for scooter deployment or whatever. And that's okay. You know, we need those things too, but it's not venture and it's largely failing to develop on the potential of so many technologies. And that's really the the moment we're at now where we have so many technologies that made it through research that could help us solve big problems in the world, but they're not getting commercialized because the venture capital community is a, a little bit lazy and they don't take on technical risk. And so I think that's one of the things we have to really course correct on.
0: You made a joke at the beginning, um... That you spend most of your time on Earth, and it was half joking. In a way, you're serious. You're very much involved with Jeff Bezos's Blue Origin venture. Um, the invention. Well, I was. Of- you were. <laughs> yeah. Well, you were one of the one of the early guys with Bezos. Uh, some people, Doug, Douglas Rushkoff. I know you know him as well. He has a new book out next month, suggesting that. The Bezosks and the Musks of the world have screwed up this world, and now they are, they've are they invented rockets to escape the world and not take responsibility. Do you think, and, and I don't want you necessarily to criticize specifically Musk or Bezos, I know you know Bezos quite well, but do you think that these initiatives to escape the Earth, to land on Mars, these commercialization of space, is that deep future? Is that exciting to you? Is that an important venture in contrast with the Airbnbs and
1: Ubers of the world? Well, look, I think they're, they're both important in their way, right? The thing that I learned the most by working on Blue Origin you know, in the early days was the vision there is trillions of humans thriving in space, which sounds crazy to you and even to me and almost everyone. But what's really cool about it is occasionally somebody uh, gets wealthy enough to not have to worry about paying rent or putting their kids through college, and they can start to think about generations to come and solving the problems for the future. And you know, the vision for Blue Origin is thousands of years long. You got to start sometime. And what's great is you know Jeff was able to get started now, and that's going to be really good for humans because. You know, in our best case scenario, this planet melts into the sun <laughs> um, if nothing gets us before that. So, you know, we ultimately, if you you know believe in humanity and the beauty of what humans have created in any sense, I mean, I think it's worth trying to keep it going and see where where the species can go. We're not done. Um, you know, the the explorers who you know discovered this continent you know, they weren't done, you know, we have further to go. And I think that, um, so I think these are wonderful things for you, humans. You, would, you, would you put in the narrative, would
0: you put the Bezosks and the Musks in the same story as the Shackletons and the Columbuses?
1: Yeah, for sure. No question. Yeah. I mean, they're making it possible for humans. I mean, they'll, they'll die. We'll all die, but we're paving the way for the future humans to be able to go you know, like Shackleton didn't invent the ship, right? (laughs) Or he didn't figure out how to make a boat like that was done for him. So we're making the boat. Future humans are going to be able to go sail it into, into space and see what's possible. And I think that's very exciting. I don't think everybody needs to work on it. I think the criticism of, of these projects is heavily overblown. It's not necessary. Like we have, eight billion people, a few of them can go work on going to space and the rest of them can watch Netflix or whatever it is they think is more important. So I don't think there's a problem there. Um, I'm pretty excited by it. I'm not really a space geek, which is why I don't work on it, uh, anymore, but I think the potential for these technologies, you know, I'm working on one technology that's possible that people don't even realize, you know, that you can, do because of that work. You know, if, if SpaceX and Blue Origin get the cost of launch down, we'll be able to start putting solar panels in space. And th- there's no nighttime in space, there's no clouds in space. So those solar panels get sun 24 7. They don't need batteries, right? They actually get eight times as much energy and they can beam it down to Earth anywhere on the planet. That's carbon free energy that scales that doesn't need storage, that can go to the middle of Africa or wherever we want it. And that's gonna happen in years, not decades. Like That's a possible future for us. We can solve these energy problems. And that's partly because of Bezos and because of Elon Musk bringing the cost of space travel down and, and launching things into space down. So I'm super excited about the potential for those projects to enable us to solve problems here on earth in the near term you know jeff's vision is turn earth into a national park right (laughs) on thousands of years time horizon get the humans living in space let them come visit earth now and then and see all those species that we're not destroying anymore that's the real vision so i think it's pretty exciting you know why wouldn't that's kind of interesting yeah
0: we've done some shows by environmentalists actually on a uh, a similar theme um you Pablos, you said something earlier you said we all die not everyone will agree with you you're part of singularity <laughs> university the idea of singularity of course was pioneered or is pioneered by your friend uh, ray Kurzweil. while he's been on the show um you've also talked about automating ourselves are we on the verge Pablos, of merging uh, what, what do you make of merging with smart machines what do you make of of kurtzweil's philosophy <laughs> if that's the right word of, of singularity his death well, it seems to be a, a almost a death defying
1: philosophy <laughs> yeah i i i don't think that um the singularity is as ray defines it as specifically inevitable and i'm i'm kind of uh, on a different track as far as that goes but what i do think is that you know, all these technologies are tools that can help us do things better. That's not inevitable. Humans have this kind of maturation cycle we have to go through, where we've got to learn to wield the tools in positive and productive ways, you know, and we eventually learned to do that with fire. We eventually learned to do it with a hammer. We have not yet learned to do it with, with Twitter, <laughs> but we will. And, you know, that'll make it, a, a net positive thing. You know, some of these things take a while for us to to get um, under control and and learn to use in positive ways. And I think that the thing that's missing from a lot of these conversations about about being augmented by technology, which we all are. I mean, I you know, I grew up memorizing the phone numbers of my friends, and now, now I don't know even daughter's phone number, you know, <laughs> I have a, I have a phone that tells me. I don't phone even number. know my own, let alone my you don't even know your own. Yeah, you don't need to know anymore because you're a cyborg. So that's kind of exciting and it's possible for, you know, humans to advance with these tools, but we really have to take responsibility for getting clear on what are our values? What do we care about? You know, what matters to us and use them to create the future we want and not just a future that, you know, that we get stuck with because we didn't take responsibility for, for learning to wield the tools in a positive way. That's really how I think about it. And, you know, at any given moment, it, it can be really frustrating because you look around and you're not real impressed with how everybody is <laughs> putting those tools to use. But when you look on long time horizons, you can see that on the whole, humans actually do a pretty good job of advancing and getting better and taking care of of other people, you know, better over time. We have a long ways to go, but, um, but we've been doing better over time. And, and in some sense, like we have the best toolkit humans have ever had. Now we have so many possible technologies that we could put to use. There's almost no problem that we know of that we don't know how to solve if we just, you know, get our act together and, and go do it. So I'm pretty excited by that.
0: Fabulous, you talk about a, tool, a toolkit. What about the moral toolkit? Tool um, yeah. You're, you're pretty outspoken. You made a, a really interesting speech, a Wired speech in 2012 talking about, and you're a self-described hacker. You're, you know, one of the original hackers. Why hackers need to do more than just hack. You're, you're involved with Nathan, or you were involved with Nathan Myrold's uh, Global Good Fund. Um, should all hackers include, I mean, in good hacking, is is a moral tool
1: required? (laughs) Well, yeah, I think so. I mean, you know, first of all, I think, you know, there there was certainly, there's been a long history of what hacker means, and it was often synonymous with criminal. What I think it means is, you know, there's a kind of mindset that hackers have, they're really good at figuring out what's possible. They're good at figuring out what we can do that that maybe defies the rules or, or, you know, isn't in the instruction manual. And so a lot of what I try to do is, you know, help hackers, you know, aim themselves at bigger problems besides computer security. You know, we want to solve some of the big problems in the world, um, not just computer security problems. And those are the brains that we need to do it. So that's how I think about it. As far as you know what's the moral toolkit i think that's that's such an important question and this is why i'm excited about your work even though um you you often seem a little pessimistic about things i'm excited about i Me? think it's yeah, very,
0: that's big, uh,
1: yeah i noticed one time you seemed a little no, pessimistic i'm joking i'm joking that's
0: my, that's my <laughs> attempt
1: at humor <laughs> yeah mine too so look i think there's a a you know there's a very important you know kind of like right brain, left brain thing going on, right? The left brain is really good at all the logical decision-making stuff. And we really wanna use the tools we have to do a better job of making decisions about what to do using data, using the tools that we have. But um, but we want those decisions to be chosen from what's possible, right? That's what the left brain can do. That's what big data can do. That's what machine learning can do. But choosing what matters what your values are that's a right brain thing right we need our right brain to tell us what's worth doing and right now you know computers can't do that for us and that's the thing i think a lot of people are missing is that you know we have to make good decisions about what matters in the world you know we made all these people we described that earlier we have to feed them we have to give them jobs give them homes we have to keep diseases from killing them off. You know, we have a lot of work to do and we have to figure out how to solve for their happiness, for their psychological well-being. You know, these are not things computers know how to do. These are things humans have to do. Computers can help us once we know what we want to accomplish and, and how to do it, but they can't do it for us. So when it comes to the questions of morality, you know, that's, that's we need people to work on that. You know, we need to figure out how to how to take care of people. And that's what I think most people should be doing right now. You know, if you think that a robot just took your job, then, you know, go be a teacher. There's no robots teaching. Go be a nurse. There's no robots doing that. You know, go help out folks at the old folks home. We need that real bad. And we need humans to do those things, unlimited number of jobs doing those things. And so that's what we should be doing.
0: We need humans then. Yeah, we need humans to
1: do all those things. It's
0: a nice way of putting it. Uh, On your Twitter page, you describe yourself as um, implementing science fiction. You have uh, a great photo. I don't know how great a futurist you are, but you definitely photograph better than any (laughs) futurist. You look like a futurist. Great photo on Deep Future saying "Not for boring people." How did you turn out to
1: be a futurist? Were you born? I have no, when did you learn that
0: you actually wanted
1: to be one, or you were one? I've never, I've never said that in my life. It's just like something people call you at some point. I don't know. It's not. How
0: do you? I mean, a lot of people are going to be watching this and seeing think. Pavlos, yeah. he's pretty cool. I'd love to do what he does. Think about the future. Implement science fiction. How have you managed well, to do it you have to be kind of
1: crazy right yeah i think i mean i think there are people who are legitimate futurists and they have some certification and some kind of you know whiteboard with circles and arrows for figuring out the future i don't know anything about that stuff i'm probably not a legitimate futurist but um what i did in my but career all futurists
0: are by definition Pablos, illegitimate aren't they if they're legitimate <laughs> they're not a future <laughs>
1: that could be true um so I don't know about that term but what I think is you know I got excited about this you know this feeling that the technology could give us these superpowers and that the technologies could help us solve problems and be useful for people and so for, in my whole career I just chose to work on projects where I could advance these technologies and put them to use for people and a lot of people are not driven that way. You know, a lot of people are not choosing what to do in their life or with their time and attention and resources and in their career based on a, um, you know, a belief in the things they're working on. They're, they're, they're optimizing for something else and you can't fault people for doing what they got to do. But I feel like um, it worked out pretty well for me. You know, I got to work on things that I was interested in all the time. Uh, sometimes they they mattered. Um, Sometimes they were way too early. That was a big problem for me earlier on. Hopefully I'm better at picking timelines now, but the, yeah, I I always look for the technology that I think can make a difference. And I go try to advance that and work on those things. And so um, I've been doing that for a long time now. And I guess that in some sense, I've been working on building the future and that feels pretty good to me still.
0: Fabulous, I normally interview authors for this show, oh. so I'm an especially exception for you. Are books important Aww. for you? Do you read a lot? What kind of books do you like to read? And, and do you think of books yeah. and writers as part of potentially the deep future?
1: Yeah, there's a. I think there's a... I, I mean, I probably read about two books a week. Um, it's almost exclusively nonfiction. A lot of it is uh, about... Uh, different areas in science and technology and um, a little bit about business Um, I'm trying to understand you know a lot of different areas in science and I want to understand what the state of the art is because that informs what we can turn into new technologies and so it's a lot to to fill my head with but I like doing that and it's interesting to me and uh, you can't keep up on everything but I have a good head start on a lot of these things. So it's, it's relatively efficient for me to learn new things. So yeah, I use audiobooks a lot and I use podcasts a lot. I really like the long form conversations like we're having now. That's valuable. I learn a lot from those things. Um, I don't, I didn't write a book. Um, you know, it's, uh, I, I might do that someday. <laughs> Haven't done it yet. Um, I think the authors are important when you look at there, I think there's different classes. So I love authors that explain things. Lately, I've been gobbling up uh, geopolitical commentators. I know probably everybody thinks one or the other of them is full of shit, but I learned so much about the forces in play that I didn't understand before. So that's one I've been learning a lot from. Science fiction novelists had a really important role in I, I think they used to do a really good job of creating these sort of practical visions for the future, right? And, you know, when, and, you know, when we started Blue Origin, I was um, working with folks who, you know, who read Heinlein, you know? And, and uh, they had that vision of going to space. And I think the whole generation before me, you know, all the guys who went to the moon all those engineers who made it possible to go to the moon, you know, they grew up reading Heinlein. And they just had this vision of going to the moon and tried to figure it out. And I think that's really cool. So I think those folks have an important place. They've sort of lost their way in my mind with so much dystopian fiction. I think it's a cop-out. You know, if you're a science fiction novelist and you're writing more dystopian fiction, we don't need you. Like, we have enough of that. Like, it's, it's easy. It's lazy. A hard thing to do and an important thing to do is show us a practical, possible vision That's positive. You know, people need that. And if you want to be, you know, if you want a meaningful career in fiction, go write that and make it compelling. I would love that. So that's my that's my uh, challenge to the to the authors on your show. You know, (laughs) I'm going to throw you under the bus if you aren't contributing to making the future better instead of worse. I know it's easier because scary stories sell. Um, but they've been irresponsible. Hollywood's been irresponsible. They, they need a boogeyman, so they're always using AI and robots now as the boogeyman, and they're showing all the terrible, possible futures. Those are not inevitable futures. Those are just scary stories that, that get people excited and sell movies. But you know what? We actually are going to create a future, and it's going to be better than that. So uh, we'll leave you guys behind. So that's what I think about the authors. <laughs> um But, you know, I don't have a best-selling science fiction novel of my own, so (laughs) they're winning at some game.